Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. We're up to episode 39 and concentrating on the Natal Front, or what was known in the period as the Eastern Front. The Natal town of Ladysmith was relieved by General Sir Redverse Buller on the 28th of February 1900, following the Battle of the Tugela Heights. Buller rode into the town on the 1st of March 1900, and if you'll remember, that made movie history by being the first general filmed entering a town to relieve a siege. On the 19th of May, Buller planned the next stage. The Boers had crossed the Drakensberg at Langsneck, and those who could be persuaded to remain had established well-concealed trenches on either side of the pass. Realising this, Buller decided to create the impression that Langsneck was his target, rather than his true objective, which was actually Boerter's Pass, named after the Boer leader Louis Boerter. The 4th Brigade and the 1st West Surrey Regiment were ordered to form the advance guard. They marched to Ingogo, or what the Boers called Skeinshoekte, where they bivouacked for nine days. Their camp could be clearly observed, as usual, by the burghers from their positions at Lang's Neck. Littleton's division commenced clearing the Duenbach to the southeast near Landmannsdrift, while General Hildyard reached Utrecht on the 29th of May. After a considerable amount of discussion, the Landros, or Magistrate, formally surrendered the town of Utrecht, and the Boers retreated, taking up a position on the hills above the town in return for the assurance by the British that Utrecht would not be shelled if they remained there. The Transvaal flag and six rifles were taken away as a sign of submission, and Buller's proclamation of surrender by the town was posted up on its notice boards. But Hildyard had hardly left Utrecht before the Boers returned, reoccupied the town, tore down the proclamation, and arrested the Landros who had surrendered. Despite the comical aspect of this incident, it proved once again how adept Buller's commanders were at wasting time. He had halted in Newcastle for no less than 16 days and had failed to move further than Ngogo and Utrecht. Meanwhile, Littleton moved his division northwards, having cleared Christian Boerter's force from the Dürrenbach and advanced to Wackerström in the eastern Transvaal, which he captured on the 13th of June. So, at this stage, we'll leave Littleton and return to Buller and the remainder of the Natal army. It may be recalled that during the vacillation following the relief of Ladysmith, Lord Roberts eventually gave up any hope of cooperation from Buller and informed him by telegram on the 25th of May that he could manage without him. Roberts suggested to Buller that once he had decided upon his next move, he was to advance on Belfast in the eastern Transvaal and cut off the Delagoa Bay railway line. On the 29th of May, Buller wrote to Christian Boerter, who was in command of Lang's Neck. That's because General Marula Erasmus had already travelled to Pretoria. Buller told Christian Butter that he believed that the situation for the Boers was hopeless and suggested a cessation of hostilities. As a result of the telegram, Butter then rode down to below Lang's Neck under a flag of truce. Buller was joined by Clary, who pointed out to him that Roberts had advanced as far as Germiston and that the fall of Pretoria was inevitable, so further resistance by the Boers would be a waste of life. Boerter naturally requested assurance from Buller that he was really authorised to make the proposal for the cessation of hostilities. <laughs> Funny enough, neither Buller nor Boerter had such authorisation from either of their two commanders. Ignoring this military protocol faux pas, Buller proposed that the Boers disperse to their farms, leaving behind their artillery, but they could take their rifles. This bizarre arrangement would have terrible repercussions for the British later, 
during the guerrilla war period. A final decision regarding the surrender of arms, however, would be taken when peace was announced, said Buller. Fortunately for the Boers, Buller was unaware that they were totally demoralized, numerically stretched to the limit and facing large-scale desertions. The nice rates we have tracked since October had already left with his brothers to try and find their family in Pretoria, so you can see that already the burghers were making, let's say, alternative plans. Buller was still under the impression that he was faced by a determined foe, but was heartened by the news that Roberts had captured Elonsfontein. This also increased the desertion amongst the Boer forces, unknown to Buller. The meeting of Buller and Boerter ended with both parties agreeing to a three-day armistice. During this time, their proposal was conveyed to Lord Roberts on the one hand and the Boer government on the other. While waiting for the replies, both sides enjoyed a few quiet days, during which they edged themselves into more favourable fighting positions in the almost inevitable event of a deadlock. A few days later, a reply came from Lord Roberts. His terms were unconditional surrender, the Boer rank and file being required to give up their arms and horses, after which they would be allowed to return to their homes only if they agreed not to fight again in the war. The officers would be kept on parole. So on the 5th of June 1900, Roberts entered Pretoria, setting the scene for the next stage of the main theatre of the war. And on the same day, Christian Boerter informed Buller in Natal that his terms had been unacceptable to the government, and the armistice ended with salvos being fired by the British gunners. Meanwhile, Littleton bivouacked at Kutsia's Drift on his right flank. Hildyard moved his division to De Vett's farm, south of the Skeinshochter Ridge, where he was joined by the 2nd Brigade. And, on the 6th of June, General Brocklehurst's 2nd Cavalry Brigade linked up with him. The scene in Natal was now set for Buller's next move. His options were to move via Lang's Neck, involving a frontal attack against an apparently well-defended Boer position, or to undertake a flanking movement to the east or west. The former would have presented him with difficult terrain, whereas the latter was the shorter route via Boerter's Pass to Volksrust. He opted for the latter. Boerter's Pass is the main route from Newcastle via Memel and Frieda to the Free State to the west. The most fascinating feature of the Drakensberg in many places along this route is that it has a steep yet not inaccessible incline from KwaZulu-Natal, while from the Free State it is comparatively level with the odd section of high ground commanding the descent into KwaZulu-Natal. This terrain increased the difficulties facing the advancing British, but it afforded the Boers a splendid view of the route of their adversaries and made for an easier defence. Boerter's Pass is not as steep as what's known as the Ulufirshoek or Van Rienen's Pass. The latter is one of the most dangerous automobile passes in South Africa, where there is literally a serious accident a week in the modern era. The present road does not exactly follow the original route of the turn of the century, which is marked by a gap in the escarpment dominated by a large Norfolk pine tree, which is still there. The pass is commanded by the Inkwalwani Heights to the north and by Van Weikskorp to the south, with a small conical kopje called Spitzkorp situated in between. It's beautiful and it's scenic, but at the point the two armies faced off, it was deadly. 
Naturally, the Boers had the advantage of the heights, but despite orders from Boerter to occupy the region and an appeal by President Kruger to abide by these orders, General Joachim Free remained unconvinced that this was the British objective and he felt sure that Lang's neck was the priority. He had been tricked. Van Veig's Corp, which was the key to the pass, had been occupied by only 25 burghers, which was a blunder by Furry and would anger both Boerter and Kruger. Buller selected Van Veg's Corp and another feature in Quello, which is over 2,000 metres above sea level. Both these heights loom over the escarpment and therefore dominate the area, and Buller was correct in deciding the position was ideal for his heavy artillery on the top of these two heights in order to converge upon any Boer threat along the escarpment. On the 6th of June, Hildyard was ordered to reconnoitre Van Beek's Corp, and he sent the South African Light Horse along with the 13th Battery Royal Artillery and the Middlesex Regiment from General Talbot Coke's Brigade to inspect this key point. The Light Horse occupied Van Beek's Corp with minimal opposition, but the Boers at Boerter's Pass realised immediately the threat that they posed and tried to retake the position. They moved towards Sweetwater's farm in the southwest and then set fire to the felt. Lieutenant Colonel Bing of the South African Light Horse had positioned his men along the crest of Van Corp with a front of approximately five kilometres. Hildyard then realised too that this reconnaissance would now have to be turned into a full-scale operation if he wished to secure the high ground, so he ordered the Middlesex Regiment to climb Van Corp, and the remainder of the brigade was ushered forward from his HQ at De Vets Farm, which was only a short distance back along the road to Newcastle. The Middlesex Regiment battled for several hours, and the Boers only withdrew at nightfall. A decision was then taken by the British to position some long-range guns on the summit. However, the sheer cliffs made it difficult to drag the 12-pounder guns up to the top, and it took all night for only one to make it. During the action, the Boers opened fire with their long tom, which they had positioned on the summit of Pokweni, some kilometres away. In fact, it was almost 10 kilometres away, but this large weapon still created a problem for the British, hunkered down as the shells exploded nearby. Then, on the 7th of June, the British concentrated their forces in preparation for a full-scale attack on Boerter's Pass, and what a force it was. Major General Talbot Coke's 10th Brigade occupied Van Veek's Corp, Major General Wynne's 11th Brigade and 2nd Cavalry moved to Gilhoutboom Farm, which was on the east side of Van Veek's Corp, while Lieutenant General Sir Francis Clary was left in command of the outpost lines in front of Ngogo as a defensive position with his 2nd Division. The Boers had occupied the top of the escarpment from the south of the pass to Nkwalwani, where they had positioned some field guns and pom-poms at intervals along a broad front. The main body was provided by the Leidenberg Commando, assisted by a few hundred men from the Carolina Commander, and the total of only 2,000 burghers then faced around 16,000 British. This was a lopsided clash, if there ever was one. At 10 in the morning on the 8th of June 1900, the British heavy guns opened fire, and the South African light horse occupied Spitzkorp without opposition. The infantry brigades moved up in echelon from the right, enabling them to roll up the Boer positions, and at the same time to conform with the shape of the hills ahead of them. At 11.45, General Wynne's brigade commenced its advance. It was deployed in echelon formation between Spitzkorp and Darwin Farm on the low ground, and then shortly afterwards, Hamilton's brigade advanced to form up on the low ground between the Ngogo River and Jönenkranz Farm on the left, under equally heavy covering fire from the remainder of the artillery, 
The two brigades commenced their ascent up the steep slopes of the Drakensberg along a front of around six and a half kilometers and then reached the crest simultaneously at three in the afternoon. Due to the heavy bombardment, the Boers were unable to counter this advance until the infantry reached the crest. At that point, they had withdrawn to the cover of the folds in the ground, around 1,500 meters from the edge of the escarpment. There, they brought their two pom-poms and a field gun into action and held up the advance for a short while. The Boers had also dug some trenches along the ridge where the Drakensberg juts into KwaZulu-Natal. These defences, unfortunately for the Boers, faced south, indicating that they had not expected to be attacked from any other point. Dundonald's mounted men had, however, ascended the Drakensberg from behind this feature. They then brought forward the Colt gun battery, a pom-pom, and two guns of A battery RHI, which were used to enfilade the Boer trench. This is exactly what happened to the British at Majuba, and this time the situation had been reversed, causing the Boers to retreat only after around 30 minutes of fighting. The retreating burghers then set fire to the felt and used the smoke to cover their withdrawal and rode off. Brocklehurst's 2nd Cavalry Brigade was moved to the top of the pass just before dusk, and the troops advanced a few kilometres west, but the Boers had vanished behind their smokescreen. Then it began to rain, and remember, it's midwinter in South Africa. The temperature on mountains drops way below freezing, and the British troops found that they were exposed and faced a bitterly cold night. The infantry bivouacked at the top of the hill, shivering as they couldn't light fires, and they had left their warm greatcoats at the foot of the hill. For Buller, the most important aspect of the successful outcome of the battle was that he had managed to gain a foothold in the Free State and had finally broken out of Natal. His strategy had helped Makar, where he used revolutionary tactics and deception, were repeated on a far wider scale in his operations below the Drakensberg, and in some ways was practice for the First World War. The Boers had remained convinced that Boerter would repeat the mistakes made by General Sir George Pomeroy Colley at Lang's Neck in 1881, and that the main British thrust would still be via Lang's Neck, but they were deceived. Casualty figures on both sides were comparatively light, with three British killed, while on the Boer side, only two. It is interesting to note that Buller's casualties after Ladysmith were a fraction of those incurred before the relief of that town. The Boers were no longer willing to engage in high-stakes direct action, and Buller was much cleverer about directing the attacks. After the battle, the Boers took up a defensive position along the Fasamelberg Range, through which the road to Folksless passes by a gap known as Alleman's Neck, or All Men's Pass, and that was into the Transvaal. Many of the Transvaalers had already left their positions at Lang's Neck to join Louis Butter in the vicinity of Pretoria, and Denise Reitz was one. Still, there were around 1,300 burghers, mainly from the Leidenberg and Carolina commanders, still fighting. The British, on the other hand, spent the 9th of June moving guns and supply wagons up Buerta's Pass, a task which was only completed on the following day. So, on the 10th of June, Buller formally advanced into the Free State, standing at the top of the original pass, and even today you can still see that original track he took with his wagons and his support teams. Buller established his camp some 15 kilometers from Buerta's Pass, during the afternoon, two squadrons of the SA Light Horse encountered some Boer scouts which had been based nearby. A fierce fight ensued, with the burghers advancing to within 40 metres of the British. 
only the timely arrival of the 19th Hussars cavalry and some artillery support prevented a disaster for the British, whose casualties in this action were six killed, ten wounded. The Boers lost six killed and three wounded. The stage was set for Buller's next move, which was to try and break through the Boer line at Alaman's Neck. He believed that this would involve either rolling up the Boer line along the Fasamelberger or attempting to break through the Neck itself. He chose the latter option. General Christian Butter had asked Erasmus to send reinforcements, which arrived on the 9th of June. These included 250 burghers from the Pretoria and Bethel commandos and 200 from Stanerton, but Erasmus was faced with so many desertions himself from his positions at Lang's Neck that he in turn had to request reinforcements from Bethel and Stanerton as well. So by the 10th of June, Butter's front was 12 kilometers wide, which was incredibly weak considering the number of troops he could rely on. But he did have two pom-pom guns, as well as two other field guns deployed in well-concealed positions straddling Alaman's neck, and the Boer gunners had set the ranges of likely British positions. The accuracy of their fire in the ensuing battle was to surprise the English. However, Boerter's main problem was that he was occupying too wide a front with insufficient numbers of men. He set up his headquarters on the neck near Rustfontein, while General Joachim Furi was tasked with defending Alemann's neck itself. So Buller ordered Dundonald to scout ahead of his camp to probe the neck and then to provide cover for the right flank of the advance, while Brocklehurst's 2nd Cavalry Brigade was tasked with covering the extreme left flank heading towards Butter's HQ itself. The infantry and artillery were ordered to advance along the road to Volksrist, while the South African light horse covered the rear. At dawn on the 11th of June 1900, Dundonald advanced until he was around five kilometers from the entrance to the neck, while Boer skirmishing parties harassed him from that direction. His men could clearly observe the burghers strengthening their positions by entrenching on either side of the neck. At 10 in the morning, a battery was brought into action, and Talbot Coke's 10th Brigade was ordered to attack the eastern side of Alaman's neck, while Hamilton's 2nd Brigade attacked the left. From the British point of view, Hamilton's brigade was faced with a formidable barrier of high ground. As the infantry advanced, the well-concealed Boer artillery opened fire, accompanied by very heavy rifle fire from the equally well-hidden and well-entrenched Burgers. Of greater concern to Buller were the opening rounds fired by the Boer guns, which were accurately directed right onto their positions. The Boer gunners then turned their attention to the advancing infantry, and while the ranging was accurate and the rate of fire heavy, the British surge could not be checked. Dundonald's 3rd Mounted Brigade managed to edge its way in the direction of the Boer's left flank. Then Thornycroft's Mounted Brigade and other regiments of mounted infantry, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Hubert Goff, came under extremely heavy fire from the Burgers. As the Dublin Fusiliers advanced towards the objective, they also came under fire from the same spur, and six companies instinctively swung right in order to counter the attack. The remaining two continued with their advance on their objective. As the intensity of the Boer attack increased, the Dorsets hastened their pace. The felt ignited and the southwesterly wind blew the smoke in the direction of the Boers, effectively screening the advancing infantrymen from their sight. The British then were ordered to fix bayonets and the Dorsets rushed forward to take the conical copy at the entrance to the neck, but without any flanking support from the Dublin Fusiliers. 
This move provided them with a clear view of the entrance to the neck, and despite the small size of the kopje, it afforded them good cover from the Boer marksmen. Due to the topography on the left of the British attack, Hamilton's brigade was unable to advance as rapidly as the other side, and the East Surrey Regiment in particular came under devastating fire from the Boers, who had good protection against the British artillery behind the kopje. The most critical stage of the Battle of Alamans Neck had now been reached. The Boers had managed to hold up the British infantry's advance due to the concentration on either side of Alamans Neck and from the summit of the hills on either side. As the Burgers observed the success of their comrades on that flank, they began to converge and the Boer rifle fire became more intense. This halted the British advance since they found themselves in a serious predicament due to lack of cover. It was at that stage that Buller sent the 7th and 64th batteries and two 12-pounders forward to a position which enabled them to fire into the neck. Buller was learning fast that tactical movement of artillery quickly was vital to offset the incredible mobility of the Boers. So assisted by the artillery and a charge by Captain Rowley of the Dorsets took his men straight up to the high ground at the top of the neck and by 5 o'clock in the afternoon the Boers had abandoned their central positions. However, they weren't quite beaten yet. Almost simultaneously, the 2nd Queens and the 2nd East Surreys cleared the right of the Boers' position on the western end of the neck, and the frustrated infantry poured an ineffective fire in the direction of the retreating Burgers, who once again made maximum use of their own felt fires to cover their withdrawal. Dundonald's brigade, meanwhile, had been on the receiving end of heavy small arms fire from the Burgers on the left of the Boer position, resulting in the six companies of the Dublin Fusiliers being drawn away from their objective. The advance on the British right flank had ground to a halt. Suddenly, though, the Boers realised that their centre had given way, the mounted brigade having forced them back to some sangars along the main ridge. They had then no option but to abandon these trenches and retreat behind the escarpment. So the British casualties in the Battle of Alamans Neck were officially recorded as 19 killed, 123 wounded. Once again, Boer casualty figures have been difficult to confirm, but in a telegram to President Paul Kruger on the 12th of June, Boerter reported that his burghers had fought hard against staggering odds for 12 hours and the enemy suffered heavily. Our losses are unknown. As far as I am aware, three bodies have fallen into the hands of the enemy. By the time the rest of the British troops had moved forward, it had become quite dark and the suffering of the wounded was hard for these soldiers. The moans as the freezing cold of a half-felt winter's night seeped into their bones. It was terrible, and worse, it was pitch dark, with many wounded still lying hidden away from help. Buller made no attempt to follow up his victory that night. After forcing his way through Alaman's neck, he was at last out of the mountainous terrain of northern KwaZulu-Natal and on the northeastern Free State. He was, in fact, almost in the rear of the main Boer position at Lang's Neck, which was 15 kilometers away, but only his subordinates seemed to sense this. Some of Buller's officers wanted the push to continue, and had he decided to advance that night, it is clear that he would have wreaked havoc with the already demoralized remnants of the Boer army along the old Natal-Transvaal border. Furthermore, he would have cut off the railway line, which provided the Boers with their access to the interior, and the Boer transport and guns would have been isolated. I know that hindsight is twenty twenty, but once again a British commander failed to listen to their officer corps, and once again Buller 
failed to move. The Boers abandoned their positions at Langsneck, withdrew their long time from Pukweni during the night and retreated to link up with various Boer command structures in the Transvaal. A short, sharp rearguard action was fought against the South African Light Horse on the 12th of June as they advanced towards Folksritis, but this was clearly a delaying tactic to enable the rest of the commandos to withdraw. On the same day, Major John Dartnell advanced from Skeinshoekte with the Natal volunteers and found Langsneck deserted. He was followed by Clary with the 4th Brigade and the Neck was occupied. On the 13th of June, General Wynne's brigade moved to Forksrist, which was the first town in the former Transvaal to be occupied by the Natal Field Force. The Boers had partially destroyed the Langsneck railway tunnel by placing a truckload of dynamite in the middle and then sending in a train from either side. This massive explosion caused a week's delay in restoring rail traffic and the British supply route. As Buddha slowly made his way northeast, the colony of Natal remained largely devoid of Boer activity. Still, it was defended by 15,000 men. The stage was set for Buller's role in his last set-piece battle of the Anglo-Boer War, the Battle of Bergendal, on the 27th of August, 1900. But that's for another day. And with that, we'll end this week's podcast. I know there's been a lot of detail to take in as we twisted and turned with officers commanding units expected to take mountaintops. Please remember to rate this podcast and check out our website at abwarpodcast.com. Thanks to Craig from Atlanta and Georgia who sent me an article about the test firing of a Boer War Morza which shows just how incredibly accurate the firearm was in the hands of an expert. And that test was conducted over 110 years after the rifle's manufacture. No wonder this terrible war led to so many casualties. So until next week, goodbye. Sorry, Maretta, like we did, and so may Scott at the beer hungry. And so under the doll on the moor, this the ball at the brood of the blade. Who bring me through Nadio Transvaal, Darvar Missari.